The Lord be with you. So we may be few in number because of the snow, but we are the, the mighty who have traveled long and hard through all of the, the white stuff to get here. I know, uh, I know from hearing from several of you that we were uh, really excited by last week, by all, all that Carl brought to us. And so you have traversed the snow to come again. So we are excited to be here again and have another opportunity to learn more about the writings. Without uh, further ado, let's pray and then I'll turn things over. Almighty God, we give you thanks for the gift of this day and another opportunity to open up your word. God, we, we know that the Holy Spirit is with us here, binding us together as your church. And Lord, help us remember and remind us that your Holy Spirit is the one who has inspired these ancient words that still speak to us today as your Spirit is still speaking through them. So just as the Spirit inspired these words of long ago, Inspire us today. Open our hearts, open our ears, that we may receive of the teaching we are about to receive, and that they may these, these teachings may be implanted in our hearts so that we can have the tools to read your scriptures better. We pray this in the name of Father and Son and Holy Spirit, and say together, Amen. I'll take that as my cue. Um, welcome, everybody. Uh, I'm glad to see that we've got at least a good... Uh, a good number here uh, coming back. You're bold, you're brave, you're daring. I'm sure that most of you had the same sorts of experience today. I think my shoes and my pant legs are now just drying out from shuffling around and clearing the snow from my car. Um, I did want to give a status update, a public service announcement. I am glad to report that every single red light downtown is working. <laughs> I made diligent effort to check and evaluate every single one, and yes, in, in fact, every light that I passed had turned red. So, <laughs> we're good there. Safety is an important protocol. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, the, you know, the best laid plans of mice and men. I thought to myself last night, I'm going to get up extra early, I'm going to refresh myself, I'm going to be so ready. That didn't happen. I do have five children, so what was I thinking? Yeah, five children. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, wow, some people are now doubting whether they want to listen to me. <laughs> this guy may not have very good advice. I Hi, Joel. Hi, Deanna. How are you? <laughs> so, um, before we get into talking about the book of Psalms, uh, and, and there were a few other details that I wanted to talk about, I wanted to, to step back a moment and, and address something that uh, Michael brought to my attention, uh, which was, I think, really uh, spot on and very good. Um, last time we were together, there were a number of slides in which there, there are references to the Talmud. And I had brought in a lot of uh, Talmudic writing and material because it's relevant for talking about, you know, the authorship of the biblical books. Now, part of the reason I did that is because usually when people talk about, you know, who wrote the Bible, we have this sort of gap in our thinking. We think like, oh, gee, what do I think today? And then we, we try to go back to the biblical text itself and see if the, if the Bible gives us any clues. And so there's this long gap between when the Bible was written and then when we are, and, and it kind of gets unexplored. Um, and so bringing the Talmud in, I thought, would be a really great way to explore what early uh, members of the Jewish community uh, were saying about their own scriptures and how they talk about them. Uh, but I took for granted that if I said the word Talmud, that everybody would be on the same page. And I thought, oh, gosh. Uh, when Michael pointed out, hey, you know, it was cool to have you bring in references to Talmud. Nobody knows what that is. <laughs> so I'm going to tell you what the Talmud is. So here we have a little Judaism 101. Uh, the Talmud actually comes from uh, a, a Hebrew 
root, LMD, lamad. In Hebrew, which is one of my specialties, uh, in Hebrew we make a lot of uh, goods out of just very simple uh, roots of words, uh, adding in vowels and uh, prefixes and suffixes, and we come up with a whole you know, abundance of words. And when uh, we have this root, lamad, it always has something to do with learning or teaching, okay? It's the process of information conveyance. And Talmud, which has the L, M, and D of that root, is something like, uh, it means something like study or teaching. Uh, and, And so, okay, we've got this thing that we call teaching or study uh, or lessons, and what is it, okay? Well, in the Jewish tradition, there is a body of literature that gets called the Talmud, uh, that is to say the traditional sources of study and and teaching, uh, that relates to the Bible in many ways but isn't the Bible. The Bible is not included in the Talmud. The Bible stands apart from, we've got, of course, the Torah and the Nevi'im, or the prophets, and the Ketuvim, which we're talking about, uh, the writing. Uh, we sometimes just abbreviate this as the Tanakh, because we like abbreviations in Hebrew. Um, that, is one, that is one part of the traditional scriptural texts of Judaism. And, and, and it's the best part, or it's the most significant part. I mean, uh, the Talmud is very important in Judaism, but it is, is clearly secondary in importance to uh, the Tanakh, to, to Holy Scripture, okay? Um, so what the Talmud is, though, is in the years around the time of Jesus, there were a lot of rabbis who were looking at the Torah and saying, what does this mean to us today? Uh, and they had some really bracing questions. You know, the Torah says we shouldn't work on the Sabbath, and so we don't, we don't pick up tools on the Sabbath. But what do we do if an invading army comes into our land on the Sabbath. Do we pick up weapons and defend ourselves, or do we just let them kill us because, well, at least we didn't break the Sabbath law? So these living circumstances prompted a lot of times this, these questions uh, and some evaluation. How do we best serve God? How do we best keep Torah? And so they developed a tradition, uh, orally largely, orally taught, about how to read Torah, how to make sense of it in your life, how to apply it to the everyday circumstances, and where you might have circumstances where you get, you get challenges. You know? So, for example, again, on the Sabbath thing, because obviously Sabbath's a pretty big deal, we have in Judaism discussions about when you can and when you cannot violate the Sabbath law. For example, a famous, you know, a famous uh, case in, uh, in Judaism is God commands his people to keep the Sabbath, do no work. God also commands that you circumcise your son on the eighth day of his life. What happens if your son is born eight days before the Sabbath? Do you pick up a knife and circumcise your son and break the Sabbath law? Or do you keep the Sabbath law and break the command to circumcise your son? Which do you do? You can't have it both ways. Open up your Bibles, by the way, if you have them. Uh, Look at John chapter 7. John chapter 7. There is a section in here. uh, Now I thought I had it for a second ago, and then maybe I turned the page. Oh, yeah. Look at verse 19. 
John 7, 19. Didn't Moses give you the law? And yet none of you keeps the law. Why are you looking for an opportunity to kill me? This is a controversy Jesus has entered with uh, some of the, the people in his day. The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who's trying to kill you? And Jesus answered them. I performed one work and all of you were astonished. Now, what he means by this, he's pointing back to an earlier story in which he heals a man on the Sabbath and it makes people upset. Why? Because you worked on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to do that. So he's, con- he's, he's, he's confronting them. He says, I, I perform one work and all of you are astonished. Verse 22, Moses gave you circumcision. It is, of course, not from Moses, but goes back to the patriarchs. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath in order that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because I healed a whole man's body on the Sabbath? Don't judge by appearances, judge with right judgment. So Jesus actually knows this this traditional teaching that if you have a conflict of interest between circumcision and Sabbath, you, you keep the circumcision rule and you violate the Sabbath law. Jesus actually uses that as a sort of a case study on why it's okay to heal on the Sabbath. Right, so he's he's very discursive and he's flu, affl, you know affl, he's very fluent in Jewish tradition and Jewish law. And and what he's doing is he's participating in a stream of tradition that will one day become the Talmud. Okay, it begins with this stuff that we refer to as oral Torah, which is teachings about how the Torah can be applied in everyday life. This is all orally passed down. It's never written. As, as a matter of fact, they're in, in the Talmud itself, which is what which is ironic because the Talmud is sort of the codification and writing down of the orality. Um, in the Talmud itself, it says, anybody who writes down the oral Torah is like he burns the Torah. This is like, you just don't do that. But they were doing it, so I don't know how they, how they uh, had their cake and eat it too. At one point in time, though, there was a recognition that this oral teaching that was flourishing among the rabbis that Jesus himself is debating and participating in, arguing uh, case law after case law, that it's, being, it's going to be lost because uh, of the persecutions of the Jews, the Roman occupation of Jerusalem, and things like that. So a group of rabbis, uh, very early on in the second century, they begin to be concerned that this isn't going to, orally, it's not going to be able to be transmitted, and so they commit to writing it down, editing it into a collection. We've got a guy named... Uh, Judah Hanasi, who is attributed with writing it down. And he writes, writes it down, he writes down a compilation of all of these oral discussions of law, how to apply God's law to our everyday life, in the form of a document or a set of documents called the Mishnah. Uh, Mishnah literally means just a recitation. So again, it can, sort of concludes with this notion of it's something that is oral and it's meant to be repeated out loud. So there's this Mishnah, and if today if you go and you get a copy of the Mishnah, uh, you know, you'll find all sorts of wonderful, interesting stories and topics, but it has very little to do with the Bible. Uh, there aren't even that many cross-references. There might be every now and then a, a little comment in the Mishnah about King Josiah, King David, or something like that, but largely the Mishnah is silent, and that is because the Mishnah is, it, it looks at the Torah and says, well, the Torah is the Torah, and the Mishnah is the Mishnah. We're, we're not trying to rehash old stuff. We've got uh, other things that we need to be working on. In time, however, it was felt that the Mishnah was too alienated from the Torah and from uh, the prophets and writings, and that more needed to be added to it. As a matter of fact, there's a whole generation that comes after the codification of the Mishnah, which again is sometime in the second century uh, CE. And so between the third and sixth century, 
uh, various rabbis that are now debating not only the Torah, but now are debating the traditions they received in the Mishnah, begin to uh, expand and comment on and add details to what is there in the Mishnah. Um, so what we have ultimately is we get in the third stage of the life of this material, we have the Mishnah plus commentary. Okay, commentary that says, okay, the Mishnah says this, this is what it means, this is how we can connect it with the Bible, this is, this is, this is the way we should put it into practice. And we, we refer to this uh, commentary in Hebrew, or in Aramaic, actually. This is called the Gemara. Uh, Gemara literally means it closes, the closer. Uh, that is to say, you've got the Mishnah, and then you've got the discussion that wraps it all up and puts a bow on it. Okay? And when you take these two things together, the Mishnah, which is the writing down of the oral Torah, and its commentary in the Gemara, you get the Talmud. That is what the Talmud is. The Talmud is the oral law uh, written down in a written form with extra commentary and discussion with lots of extra material. I mean, not always is it, These people didn't always have good attention spans. Like sometimes they just kind of wander off and they start talking about something that has no, and it, thank goodness, because it's so interesting, no relationship to the material at hand, much like this course. Uh, <laughs> oral Torah, Mishnah, Mishnah, and commentary equals the Talmud. Now, uh, one thing to be said is there are two versions of the Talmud. There's the Babylonian Talmud, and then there's the Palestinian Talmud, okay, or the Jerusalem Talmud. Um, they are not identical, and sometimes they have different material, different rabbis are cited, and they're different in length. The Palestinian Talmud is shorter than the Babylonian Talmud, um, but I just, you know, oftentimes what you'll see when I write it, I'll, I'll say Babylonian Talmud, and then I'll give the, the chapter, the, the, must, uh, uh, the tractate name and number, um, and this is the reason we do that, is because there's actually two different traditions. There's, there's the Talmud tradition that grew up in Mesopotamia and the one that grew up in the land of Israel, uh, and, they're, and they're somewhat different. All right, that's your crash course in Talmud. See you next Sunday. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> All right, now back to, the, back to the meaty bits. All right, so, so speaking of Talmud, by the way, um, there is a lot of talk of the Psalms in the Talmud. The Psalms is a very, uh, the Psalms are, you know, this is, this is one of the things I, I had a conversation with one of my daughters who was saying, you know, well, Dad, what is it? You know, Mom says Psalms 104, and you say Psalm 104. Which one's right? And I said, well, obviously I am. <laughs> no, I said, okay, well, here's the thing, right? The, the whole book isn't really a book. It's a collection of individual Psalms, and so each one isn't really a chapter. It's a Psalm. So Psalm 97, Psalms 97 to 98, right? All right, so in, in the collection of the Psalms, we have a number that are attributed to David, okay, uh, or something like that. And if you open up your Bible, you can see uh, in these titles of the Psalms, you know, Le David, or To David, or For David, or With Respect to David, if I want to get kind of linguistically nerdy, um, we don't really know that it's saying that David wrote it, but some people in the tradition have said this. But there's, you know, some that are accorded, according to David and some that aren't. So authorship is always a question about the Psalms. And, and, and this is for a good reason, as I indicate here. Uh, some of the material that is found in the Psalms seems to be very ancient and others less so. You know, uh, Psalm 124, for example, seems to be a reflection on the time when the Israelites came back from exile in the Persian period. 
Well, David is long dead by then, so how could David have written this? However, I will say this, by the time of the Talmud and later Jewish tradition, uh, tradition, by the way, that starts already in, in the time before Jesus and, and rolling into it, David is seen to be prophetic. Um, and in, you know, I know that you guys talked a bit about the Targumim, the, the Aramaic translations of the Bible, but in, in the Targums that we have of the book of Psalms, uh, very often we see like, that the introductory lines that give the context for the psalm, what it means, how you sing it. Uh, in the Targums, oftentimes it says, these are the words that David spoke by the spirit of prophecy. Baruch <laughs> uh, Niviuta, right? Baruch Niviuta. So, so d- there is this tradition that David has prophetic insight. And, uh, and I think on some level, if you think about it in terms of authorship, uh, this may be the tradition's way of trying to reconcile the fact that David is understood to be behind Psalms, and yet so much of the Psalms deals with uh, times other than his. Okay? And that process is already at work even before the Targums in, in the translation of the Septuagint. The Septuagint, I think, has twice as many Psalms that are attributed to David than the Hebrew Bible does. So Davidic authorship is, and of course, many of us learn you know, in Sunday school, uh, who wrote the book of Psalms? David! Well, no, this book of Psalms doesn't even say that, right? It says, this is a song written by Joe Saphat. <laughs> you know, Joe, you know, you know <laughs> doesn't have the name Joe. All right. Um, but some, some Psalms that, uh, even, the, even the 151, which isn't in our canon, are accorded to David. They are given that, uh, that place. But many Psalms would seem to evade that kind of identification. And uh, I think, I, I don't know if you guys, what, what uh, liturgical reading cycle you read today, but did you read Psalm 29 today? I don't know if it's in the Revised Common Lectionary. Okay, now we don't know. Well, I, in, in our lectionary today, we, and I'm not reading from it, so it's, <laughs> but we're reading Psalm 29. If you look at Psalm 29, this would be one. This would be an example of a psalm that many people, many scholars regard as being very ancient um, because of the way it talks about God, its form and, and function. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings! Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength! Ascribe to the Lord the glory of His name! Worship the Lord in holy splendor! The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord causes oaks to whirl. It strips the forest bare in his temple all say glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Okay. Um, the imagery that's evoked in this psalm is fundamentally different than that which we'll find in other psalm uh, aspects or collections. And, and it kind of almost de- it draws and depicts God uh, almost as if he is seated in heavens barking forth lightning and thunder and that he's, he's associated very closely with earthquake, fire, and storm. Uh, we refer to this as theophany language in biblical studies. When, when God shows up, this is the kind of stuff he does. But we also tend to identify this as some of the, some of the earliest depictions of God, right? Uh, today, we might, we might think of God as, a, as our Father, our Heavenly Father, and 
depict him, you know, perhaps as the great judge or lawgiver. Um, but in the more ancient traditions, you know, he's often depicted as this fearsome, fearsome warrior who resides in, in uh, desolate places on mountains and wields thunder and lightning. So when we look at passages like that in the book of Psalms, it's hard for us not to say, wow, this is really old. This is really old. We also find sometimes, uh, I think in the case uh, at hand, uh, Psalm 22, um, no, not 22, be 21. It's hard for me to remember exactly this detail. One of these psalms, maybe it's Psalm 20, uh, one of these psalms we actually have discovered in use in another religion in the ancient world, which is kind of fascinating. Um, yeah, I'll have to think about this. When we, when we get to talking more in a focused way about psalms, I'll bring this up. Um, it, it was actually, it was only discovered in the 60s, and it took a lot of time to discover and, and untangle because this, this other psalm text, um, it was, and we don't know exactly why they did this, but the writers who, uh, who encoded it, they wrote it in Egypt, they wrote it in Aramaic, but instead of writing it in Aramaic letters, they used Egyptian script like hieroglyphics. It's like, why did you do that? <laughs> it just made it so much harder. Uh, but when we finally were able to decode it, we thought, oh my gosh, this is almost identical to Psalm whatever, 20. Um, so clearly some of these psalms were almost like pop songs on the radio. No radio, of course. Uh, the traveling minstrels maybe are going around singing them, and people adapt them freely to the worship of their particular deities. So, but that, that's something else we can talk about. So all sorts of things that are going on in psalms that might otherwise elude our our vision that uh, we could raise questions about. Speaking of questions, by the way, I, I, I forgot to start off with saying, did anybody have any questions from last time or any questions coming to your mind now? Because I, you know, before I get started, I better give you an opportunity to open your mouth. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, they, they were written from, I don't know when, till about, you know, the third century, I would say. And, and they're edited uh, up until later periods, right? So certain, certain parts of them are changed and reoriented. Um, many people regard the collection as a whole as really fundamentally being more about the worship of the second temple period with occasional forays into the earlier period. I think if we want to go back to the earliest stuff, with the caveat that sometimes there's very early material that's been kind of adapted in, uh, the earliest activity in the Psalms is probably happening in the 9th century. That, that, that's what I'm, I'm thinking, early. Because that's, you know, the 9th century is when the temple in Jerusalem is founded, um, and, and there's so much attention paid to coming up with formal worship and things like that. Although, the book of Psalms also gives us material that says comes from Moses. So Psalm 90, for example, is said to be actually Moses' psalm over the people. Um, but, you know, what, how, one of the things we have to ask is, Unless we were to find a manuscript, how else do we gain access to that question, right? That's the challenge. You know, how do we date biblical texts? Well, the, the main reason, the main way we do this, the main fundamental reason, not reason, why do I keep saying that word? I have no reason today. Um, the main way we do this when we lack actual physical evidence is we, we try to appeal to linguistic arguments. You know, language changes over time. Okay, if you pick up a you know a, a page and you're looking at it and and it has all of these strange it looks you know you know it's English but it's got all these strange extra syllables and you know prefixes and suffixes you go ah, it's like English but not English 
and you might you might be able to deduce, oh well, this this is English. It's it's Middle English. You know, it it looks a little different. We can do something similar with Hebrew, uh, although it's a little tougher because unlike English, which is our own native language, we lack that kind of fundamental basis of comparison. But there is a whole enterprise, a whole school of thought in biblical studies called like like the linguistic dating of biblical texts, where people look at you know the Psalms and they say. You know, and it, not just linguistics, but also poetic style. You know, this has a 3-2 beat, and it consistently goes throughout the entire manuscript. That doesn't come into fashion until the 6th century. Okay? Uh, this, however, is got, it's got no beat. It's erratic. Um, but we notice that the line A and line B relate in a certain way, and B and C expand each other. And that was a poetic style that we were most familiar with in the 12th century. So we have those kinds of things that we can try to hang our hat on. Uh, and, and, and those sorts of features, uh, uh, in particular, when, when we talk about poetry, though, one of the struggles we have is that poetry tends to be conservative. And because the poet, is, the poet is driven by a desire to make beautiful sound, they are going to reach, reach deeper and further in their linguistic pool to get the right kinds of stuff, which means that poetry sometimes can be deceptively archaic-looking. It's a challenge. It's a real challenge. <coughs> but thank you for that question. It was good. Good question. And, and, and like most questions, I'll have to say, I don't know. <laughs> it's unfortunate, but that's true. Any other questions? Now everybody's afraid to ask me a question because I, <laughs> I open my mouth and I don't close it. All right. Moving on. So Psalms, there's plenty to unpack there. And, and I, as I promised, though, eventually we'll, we'll go there. But since we don't have time to open that can of worms, let's talk about Job. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. Out of the frying pan into the fire. You know, Job, if if you've never had the the opportunity to read it, I really do recommend it. Um, But, you know, get yourself a a glass of, uh, a cup of coffee or a glass of scotch (laughs) and prepare for a long haul. Job is a really, really tremendous book, and there are times in my, in my faith life that I've really thought, you know, I love the fact that it's included in the canon because it just, you know, it's not, it's not what we would expect if the people who are at the roots of our faith were trying to cover up, like, the ugly side of life. People, you know, people accuse us of that all the time. Karl Marx, <clears throat> opiate of the masses. <laughs> Did he read the Old Testament? Does this look like opium? <laughs> right. No. So, you know, against the charge that, you know, that religious people only believe that they've got some fairy being in the sky who's going to deliver on every promise and he's going to solve every problem. And, and that's how we, you know, we live our lives in this, this hopeful, dreamy wisp of a future. Read Job. I mean, this book is essentially just sort of a slap in the face of that dogmatic insistence that uh, good people get good things. <laughs> Right. As a matter of fact, there are, there are some people who feel that Job is, in some ways, chastening against the possibility that we would come up with that idea in the first place. You know, books like Deuteronomy and Chronicles heavily emphasize the notion that um, when you do righteousness, the Lord rewards you, and when you do wickedness, the Lord punishes you. And then here we have a wisdom book that totally demolishes that entire argument. How did it find its way into the canon? <laughs> What's it doing there? How did 
people over the centuries read this book and not feel like it was arguing against some of their own, their own faith beliefs, right? Well, I mean, I think in part, maybe some of the answer to that might be like the way it's couched. You know, this is a book we often refer to as wisdom, but it's not wisdom like the book of Proverbs. It doesn't have uh, little one-liners and witticisms. It has long tirades and these deep speeches about, you know, like literally plumbing the depths of the earth uh, and, and, and comparing that to the search for God, the search for truth, the search for wisdom. Um, the book itself is, is describing a man named Eov, or Job as we call him, and he's, he's said to live in the land of Uts, and it's sort of like, it's like Oz, right? Like, where is that? Um, there are indications that Uts should be like on the other side of the Jordan River and that his closest associations are on that Transjordanian side of the river. Maybe he's an Edomite or something like that. Although he's, ne- we're never, I, he's never given an ethnic name, right? He's never Job the blank. He's just Job, the righteous man from Uts. And this fellow... Uh, you know, he's a, a righteous man. He's a holy man. He apparently worships the Lord. Um, he is so fastidious in his reverence that not only does he take care of his own sins, but he watches out for the sins of his children, and then he makes sacrifices whenever they screw up, right? He's, he's you know, like helicopter parenting their, their spiritual lives, right? Job is scrupulous. And of course, maybe that's part of the problem, right? Your scrupulosity can be its own kind of moral failing. But for Job, this is, you know, he feels this is, this is what it means to live rightly. And, and, you know, he doesn't seem to resent it or regret it until literally the house falls down. And all of his children are laid waste, uh, his livestock, all sorts of bad things happen to him. Now, we are told in the book of Job that this all happens uh, because God made a deal with the devil, which just sounds like a, not a good idea. You know, like, and, and again, we ask ourselves, how did this get in there? How, who, who here remembers the old, the old movie uh, with, uh, with Burns, uh, Oh God, You Devil? You guys remember that movie? No? Oh? What? George Burns, yeah. Oh God, You Devil. Yeah, it's, you know, the devil shows up. George Burns plays both the devil and God, and the, the main character, like, has these conversations and deals with both, and uh, it's a good movie. You should see it. Classic. All right, so... Job is in the midst of that kind of space. And, and you know, Job, Job is, is just a puzzler all around. And, you know, I, I should address in, in my, my first point here. Uh, a lot of people really kind of have suggested that Job is the oldest book in the, in the Hebrew Bible or is antiquated. And, and, and a lot of the reason for this is the linguistic issue. You know, we talked about linguistic dating. Uh, Job has a surplus of very bizarre linguistic features and very bizarre forms. Uh, it is regarded as the most challenging Hebrew in the entire Bible. So, you know, the, the faint of heart need not apply. Um, I actually will admit that I enrolled in a class on the book of Job with, uh, the, with a professor who was well-known, I mean, is actually world-renowned for being very harsh, very harsh. And I took a class on Job with him. And I, did, I didn't stay in the class. I had to drop because I was too afraid. <laughs> I was too afraid of what he was going to make me do. Uh, you know, he said, he said, look, you know, we're going to be reading through the book of Job, which is the hardest Hebrew in the Hebrew Bible, and we're going to be reading it fast. And in addition to that, I expect each of you to be responsible for two commentaries, but they can't be in your native tongue. So, 
It has to be in German or French or German and Hebrew or Hebrew and French or why not all three? I didn't last very long. <laughs> I'll, I'll plead, I'll plead uh, guilty to that one. I was not very brave. Part of the reason, though, this, this professor is actually the one that helped me understand this very clearly. Part of the reason we have these struggles with the book of Job is that um, if you read it as Hebrew, it's very hard. But that's because it wasn't written as Hebrew. It wasn't intended to be read just as Hebrew. Um, it is its own kind of special and I think made up literary language, where what's happened is the author of the book of Job imagines what it must be like to live and speak as someone on the other side of the Jordan River. One of the things we know about the languages of this area is that just on the other side of the Jordan River, people have sort of an Aramaic-like accent. They have more Aramaic words, more Aramaic forms, Uh, Certain sound changes that happen in Hebrew don't happen over there. Certain sound changes that happen in Aramaic do. And so when you want to sound like you're living on the other side of the Jordan River, you got to talk with a little bit of Aramaic drawl. And when you do, nobody's going to mistake you for an Israelite. And so maybe you can get away with saying things that the normal Israelite can't get away with, like God's kind of a jerk. Now, that's just a possibility. I don't know if that's what the author's trying to do. But, the, but the, I can say, beyond a shadow of a doubt, the book of Job is written in a language that is meant to sound foreign, and Job is a foreigner. Now, by, by the way, that in of itself is another thing, like, why are we talking about a non-Israelite in the Hebrew Bible? How do we square that? And, and by the way, the, in the, in the, in the, the end result is the Israelite tradition, you know, the, the rabbinic tradition, takes great pains bending over backwards to explain how Job really is actually an Israelite. You know, why do they do that? Because they're uncomfortable with the idea of having this guy live out his faith in the Lord but not be a part of the community, right? But a nod to the Gentiles. Job is a, a very complex book of poetry and wisdom sayings and speeches back and forth between Job and his peers and then ultimately God, framed on both ends by narrative. And the narrative is a fundamentally different, uh, a fundamentally different section and has a different feel, um, even linguistically. You can read Job's chapter 1 and 2 with like a pretty low level of Hebrew, and you'll be fine. You understand what it's saying. And then you turn to Job 3, and your confidence is all high, and you go, no, what happened? I don't understand anything he's saying. And then you suffer, 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 and then you get to the end of the book, and you go, I understand what he's saying now, right? Which perhaps might have been the uh, experience of a lot of ancient Israelite audiences. Maybe they would be like, oh, I'm kind of having a hard time reading this book or understanding what's being said. I kind of get it. It's a little familiar. But in this setting, you know, the the poetry setting really gives us the meat of the the arguments that unfold and how is God good. It's, It's all a question of theodicy. Uh, Given the circumstances of life, how can we know that God is just? And the book of Job essentially doesn't give us an answer. He just is, okay? (laughs) He just is. So the narrative comes along and actually kind of pushes it a little bit in, 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 in a direction that is quite surprising. So we think that originally the book was just the poetic core, and then someone came along and they gave it a Hebrew cap and an end um, to help it kind of explain what's going on. And the, and the author who did this ex- helped explain what was going on, but again, by pitching a story in which God and the devil make deals about people's fates, which just is a little bit unnerving. 
And, uh, you know, the, the deal goes, if you've never read the book of Job, then let me uh, just briefly say, the deal goes something like this. Man, I love that Job. Oh, do you? Yeah, yeah. he's so righteous. You know that? Yeah, well, he wouldn't be so righteous if you weren't so nice to him. What do you mean, Satan? Oh, you know, I mean, just nothing. You give him everything, that's all, I'm just saying. Well, what do you mean? I mean, shouldn't I give him everything? I'm a good God. Well, yeah, but do you ever think, like, Maybe you're too easy on these people. You know, you think that it's so important for them to have faith, but what faith does he ever have to have? You're just constantly wiping his nose and, you know, catching all his boo-boos, you know. Why don't you, why don't you let me have a little crack at him? Okay, what are you up to? I'm just, I'm just saying, look, you know, if you really want to know if this guy is solid gold standard material, let me into his life. And uh, if he still likes you by the end of that, you'll know he's really good. Yeah, that's cool. Let's do that. Why? So according to Rentdorf's introduction, the speeches of Job in the dialogue part are marked by lamentations and invective against God, which are unique in the Old Testament for their profundity, acuteness, and their often challenging statements. That's an understatement. So there's a lot of stuff. You know, a lot of people say, oh yeah, Job rose to the challenge, you know. Other people say, no, he didn't. Are you reading the same book I'm reading? It's ambiguous at times. Does Job live up to the challenge that Satan challenges God to, to put him under? Um, you know, they're even all the, all the way at the end, you know, uh, at the book, you know, we have lots of Bible translations that will tell us that the, at the very last chapters, Job repents. It's, oh, I realize I was, I was in the wrong, you know. I was essentially, the, the entire book of Job is essentially God, uh, God on trial, Job is trying to bring a lawsuit against God, and is he subpoenaing God and saying, we need to show up to court? And when God does, he kind of just blows up the courtroom and doesn't actually answer any of the charges, and then Job repents, and all is nice and good, like, oh, he's owned his place. But there are some interpreters who say, actually, no, Job does not repent. What he says, what we, we think he's repenting, what Job actually says is, man, I feel sorry for people who have a God like you. Wow. <laughs> and then God is like, okay, we're good. <laughs> so this is a book that demands a lot of the reader, uh, a lot of meditation, a lot of prayer, a lot of thoughtfulness, a lot of thinking. And, and you know, what, what blows me away is that it, it is all those things, and it was, it was selected. I mean, there are lots of other, other books that could have made the cut. Some of them almost did. Ben Sirah, Wisdom of Solomon, okay? So... Why this one? I think it's because it offers something theologically that we all need, which is a recognition that our searches can only go so far. And there's a lot more going on than, than what we're able to fathom. And, uh, and we need this kind of corrective to an overly simplistic view that good people are blessed and bad people are cursed, and therefore, if you're going through trouble, you must be a bad person. And if you're having lots of success, you must be a good person. And we, we know enough. I mean, all of us collectively in this room have had enough life experience to know that ain't true. So if we were pitched that line, and there are certainly churches that do pitch that line, there is a theology out there of prosperity that, you know, good people are blessed and bad people are cursed. And, and by the way, in my own ministry, I encounter this. Listen, there was a woman I was working with for almost a year who would go back and forth between our church and another church. And uh, when she was with us, she would 
you know, she would be striving and, and, and working on bettering herself. And one of the things that was most important was uh, she needed to be on medication. And then she'd leave us for a while for some reason, and then we'd come back and she was off her medication. Why is that? And she was going to this other church, and this other church was actively telling her, you know, if you had more faith in God, you wouldn't need that medication. This is a church here in Canton. You know, the fact that you take that, and, and, and by the way, this isn't just psych, psychiatric medication, that was true, but, but diabetes medication. You shouldn't take that diabetes medication. You need to have more faith. Because if you had faith, then you wouldn't have diabetes. You either have diabetes or faith. So do you want to keep taking that medicine, which just signals that you don't have faith? <laughs> no, that's crazy. Don't listen to these people. But they're out there. Other people are out there too, right? You know, I noticed that you're really struggling to pay your bills. You probably are sinning. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right now, with thoughts about what I want to do to you. <laughs> Job is a book that I think that some people are just not reading. Because it totally demolishes this idea that bad only ever happens to bad people and good only ever happens to good people. I mean, that doesn't even, that doesn't even sound like Jesus, right? God, God's love for the world is shown up in this, that he makes his reign fall on righteous and wicked alike. Right? Everybody gets it. Simultaneously, in the great story of Israel, you have one generation who refuses to go into the promised land. And this is apropos uh, uh, preaching a message later today about this, this wilderness tradition. Um, you know, one generation sins, but all of Israel will have to suffer for 40 years, even, including younger kids that, that don't, okay? Simultaneously, God provides graciously and mercifully to these younger children, providing them food every day as they're in the, in the wilderness for 40 years. And all of the suckers get to eat it too, <laughs> This is the way God is, right? It's not a, it's not a one-size-fits-all thing, and, you know, but, it's, but it's also not, you know, it's, it doesn't ignore the fact that we have a lived experience that tells us that everything is not okay and that just simply believing or having enough faith uh, doesn't resolve every single problem. Okay? And Job, of course, uh, adumbrates that very strongly. Uh, you know, and there, there are people who would say, oh, but his story ends well. You really need to think about this, you know, like, didn't end well for all of his children who were killed. I mean, he got replacement children, but that's just a little weird, right? <laughs> it's like your favorite TV show is a series, and then like from one season to the next, they replace all the actors, and you go, something's not right. That pretty much happened with Job in real life. Okay, right. Anyway, if he's a real person. There are lots of debates about Job, by the way. Um, some people in tradition say, oh, he was a historical figure. Others say, no, it's a parable. And this, this debate goes all the way back to the rabbis. There's uncertainty about this. The fact that it begins, once there was a man named Job, seems to incline in the direction of a parable, but I'll leave you to make your own decisions about it. Proverbs, another wisdom collection, um, by the way. And, and, you know, but Proverbs is fundamentally different. You know, so, so taking a, a step back for a second, if you look at, at Job, we'll see a, a reflection on wisdom that is actually really robust, uh, that kind of helps us discriminate between the kinds of wisdom literature that we have in the, in the Old Testament. Job 28, one of the things I find most fascinating with this is, uh, and, and part of the reason for this is, I'm really into like hobby mining and, and like metal smelting. I don't know why, it's just a thing. And so finding this in the Bible when I first read this made me so giddy. Job chapter 28, surely there's a mine for silver and a place for gold to be refined. 
Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from ore. Miners put an end to darkness and they search out the farthest bounds, the ore in gloom and deep darkness. They open shafts in a valley away from human habitation. They are forgotten by travelers. They sway suspended, remote from people. As for the earth, out of it comes bread, but underneath it is turned up like fire. Its stones are the place of sapphires. Its dust contains gold. That path no bird of prey knows, and the falcon's eye has not seen it. The proud wild animals have not trodden it. The lion hasn't passed over it. The men there put their hand to the flinty rock, and they overturn mountains by the roots. They cut out channels in the rocks, and their eyes see every precious thing. The sources of the rivers they probe, and hidden things they bring to light. But where shall wisdom be found, and where is the place of understanding? Mortals do not know the way to it. It is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it's not in me, and the sea says, it's not with me. It can't be gotten for gold, and silver can't be weighed out for its price. It can't be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx and sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. So the point being here, the, the, the poet, <coughs> pardon me, the poet uses knowledge of the natural world this is actually really impressive knowledge. Like, how many of you kind of would be able to poetically spin a line about an ancient miner uh, digging in the roots of the mountains and plucking out all this stuff? This person is very well educated, very well informed, and they're using it as a foil to talk about, you know, we can peel back the layers of the earth and find the most precious things, but we still don't know where wisdom is. And, and that's, a, that's, that's a very deep kind of soul-searching quest that Job is on. Uh, Job, you know, when, when wisdom is brought into Job, wisdom is very much this esoteric sort of, this questing, do we really even know anything anywhere? It, 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 pro, it has a proclivity toward philosophy. That's very different than Proverbs. I mean, Proverbs will talk about wisdom and talk about gaining wisdom, but in, profit, uh, in Proverbs, wisdom is much more oriented toward the practicals of everyday living. In Proverbs, wisdom is about the moral and ethical decisions we find ourselves in and ways of getting along in the world that lead to success. Okay? So in some ways, um, Job and Proverbs are standing opposite each other in the wisdom literature because Proverbs is likely a source where you're going to see you know, the people who are righteous prosper and the wicked will suffer. Therefore, be righteous so you can prosper and don't be wicked so you don't suffer. And then Job comes along and says, no, that's not accurate. There's something more to the picture. Okay? Um, Proverbs has some lengthy sections in it where there's some sort of narrative developed. Uh, Proverbs 1 through 3 is an opening dialogue between a father and a son, uh, which could be a foil for talking about a a student and teacher, you know, something like that. Um, Proverbs 8 is a monologue by Lady Wisdom, where she talks about her origins and how she was involved in God's creative work. But outside of the first nine chapters, so chapters one through nine in Proverbs are very heavy on larger narrative structures and talking about characterization and all these things. And then immediately after that in 10 and going almost toward the end of the book of Proverbs, most of Proverbs is is, uh, short aphorisms that are meant to be sort of plucked out and applied uh, to life. And, And some of them are, I think, just really great. I used to do an exercise with my students where I would have them read Proverbs 10 to 24, and then I, I asked them, pick, you know, pick two Proverbs that you feel like uh, you really could use uh, you know, some practice in, pick two Proverbs that a friend of yours really needs to hear, and pick two Proverbs that you think the world at large would really benefit from. Um, 
and you know, almost universally, all my students would say, they would pick proverbs that deal with, you know, listening more than talking, and, uh, which is, of course, problematic because, you know, here I am and I'm not listening, I'm talking. But whatever, it's the, pro- it's the proverbs problem. All right, anyway, uh, what it means by uh, proverbs, when it means wisdom, though, one of the things is, you know, wisdom, that, that's a kind of a, that's a hard thing to talk about. What is wisdom? We want to think it's, it's, there's a net sum benefit there. Wisdom is always a good thing, and, and that, that's true. Um, but knowledge is kind of a difficult subject in the Hebrew Bible. You know, remember that knowledge is also wrapped up in the story of the, the Garden of Eden, right? And in that place, knowledge didn't play a very good role. Gaining knowledge of good and evil, gaining, gaining this knowledge, was actually, in some ways, detrimental to the human race. I was actually, matter of fact, I was just teaching an online course. Uh, I, I am teaching an online course right now from Malone, and I had a student posting in an online discussion, you know, something about a childbirth, you know, how in Genesis, in Genesis 3 it talks about God making childbirth difficult, and it reminded me uh, of an observation a, a senior scholar in Bible had, had made once, it's so simple, I couldn't believe I'd never seen it. Um, we do recognize that human childbirth is very difficult, right? I mean, lots of people suffer, lots of anguish, sometimes you know, dramatically and dangerously. Does anybody know why? Why childbirth in humans is so problematic? Because what? Oh, that's the easy answer. Eve's fault. <laughs> Don't blame the woman, yeah. No, see, I mean, in terms of modern medicine... Why? Anybody know? It's the size of our crania. Okay, unlike other mammals, we have overly large heads <laughs> at birth. We, we come out with a very formed brain that is larger than any other mammal. And in order to fit that brain, we have to have large heads to protect it. And those large heads aren't a good fit for our small pelvises and bada-bing, bada-boom. A lot of animals give birth more or less effortlessly with very little pain. Uh, when there's pain in animal birth, it's usually because there's a problem. But we will experience pain as a normal part of it. And why? Because we're so darn smart, right? So what's really incredible about this is, you know, you look at it from the, 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 the scientific perspective, from modern medicine, the reason that, that childbirth is hard is because we know so much. And what does Genesis say? Same thing. <laughs> anyway, but I go on too long. So Job, Job gave us wisdom as this thing that we should quest after uh, of uncertain origin and, and uh, uncertain destiny. Proverbs gives us wisdom that's not so hard to reach. It's something that's practical and it can be obtained, but it makes the caveat frequently that wisdom is something that, that abides by ethical lines because knowledge is not always innocent. Um, think about King Solomon. King Solomon was the wisest man of the Hebrew Bible. He asked God for wisdom, and God gave him plenty of wisdom. He ends up being kind of a schmuck. He's not a good king. People think he's a good king because he's wise. But listen, there's, there's, it's like a, a fourfold reality. You can be good and dumb. <laughs> you can be good and wise. You can be evil and dumb, and you can be evil and wise. And in this world, we're thankful for the good and the wise and the evil and the dumb. Right? We're not so thankful for the good and the dumb and the evil and the wise because those people cause a lot of damage. Proverbs is about not just the wise, but the good and wise. People that have a, a, an understanding that their lives are, uh, are affecting other people in society, and they, they're pro-social. Um, a lot of people in modern scholarship today believe that Proverbs originated 
as a kind of literature, uh, something like what we see in, in medieval Europe that we call Furstenspiegel, which means the mirror of princes. Uh, in, in medieval Europe, there were documents that were essentially like school books that noblemen's children would read through and study and receive lots of uh, etiquette lessons from. They would teach them how to be good, upright, noble people. Uh, because in the medieval world, uh, a noble person was understood to be a morally upright person. There was the sense that, that because you're noble, you, you have no choice. You have to act in a righteous way. Now, they didn't always do that, but that was the concept. We actually refer to it as noblesse oblige. Anybody ever heard that phrase? Noblesse oblige, right. Let me just write it down because that's a word that you're going to forget if I don't. I mean, you're probably going to forget it anyway. Who am I kidding? Noblesse oblige, my nobility obliges me. Now, I wouldn't normally help you, but I'm such a noble person that I have to help you. That's the way I would think they would talk. They probably didn't talk that way. So Proverbs, some people believe that Proverbs, with its emphasis on moral instruction in wisdom and education, served to train up the elites of Israelite society and the noble people, including the princes and the kings and the queens of Israel. Uh, We do think that it did serve an educational purpose, like before it became part of the scriptures, before it became part of the Bible, it was probably used to train scribes in uh, their writing for the uh, administrations of ancient Israel. Uh, One of the reasons we think that is that makes a good parallel with what we find elsewhere. Uh, With the Hebrew Bible, unfortunately, you know, most of the texts that we have come from much later. Very few of the texts we actually get in, like, in their living context, you know, the book of Proverbs, if it was used for anything other than moral instruction in the religious community, if it had a, a practical application outside of that, we don't see it because the evidence just isn't there. And, and we would be surprised if it was because most of Israel, even though Israel's generally dry, when it gets rainy, it's kind of swampy. So things don't preserve, you know. Unlike in Egypt where the desert's very dry and so papyrus lasts for thousands of years, um, we don't get that lucky. But over in Mesopotamia, we have lots and lots of examples of Proverbs from ancient Sumer and ancient Babylon. But most of our Proverbs that we know of today from Mesopotamia are found on school tablets. That is to say, we, we know that most, most of the, the functional use of Sumerian Proverbs was in training young people how to write. So by that connection, we often wonder if the same thing wasn't going on in ancient Israel. The book of Proverbs, with its short one-liners, makes really good writing exercise. And it's got really great vocabulary for an, an intermediate student. Okay? Now, what does that have to do with reading it as scripture, reading it as Bible, doing theology? Not, it's hard to say. One thing I would say is that uh, there are people who try to do theology with the book of Proverbs. It's very tricky. I've seen people do it very poorly. Some people will say, you know, like, for example, Proverbs will say something like, you know... Um, I can't remember the exact wording, but it talks about, it talks about going into debt, you know. you know. Don't go into debt, right? And then somebody will say that. It says, the Bible says going into debt is a sin. I don't see that anywhere. It doesn't say it's a sin. It just says it's a bad idea. Again, because people have very black and white notions of reality. They go, it's either good or it's bad. Well, no, remember, good and dumb, good and wise. Going into debt can be good and dumb. <laughs> it can also be good and wise, right? So, Using Proverbs as scripture can be kind of tricky because 
Uh, more often than not, Proverbs doesn't speak with a divine voice. It speaks with a human voice. It's the, it's the father teaching the son. It's the schoolmaster teaching his pupils. Um, and, and because of that, we want to be careful how we insert God into that mix before we do a theology. All right, uh, I'm going to have time for just like one more thing, uh, and then we'll have to break, and we'll continue on the next time. The book of Ruth. Um, this is just a very short book. It's four chapters long and an easy read. Uh, and it's essentially a story about a foreign woman who suffers a great loss. Uh, her husband dies, and she's left as a widow, and she doesn't have anybody to take care of her. And she and her mother-in-law and her other sister-in-law have this bracing moment, what are we going to do? One of the sisters, the sister-in-law departs and goes her own way, uh, but Ruth cleaves to her mother, uh, mother-in-law, Naomi, and they journey to Naomi's homeland uh, in the land of Israel in hopes that they can find a close relative who can save the day. Uh, ultimately, the end of the story is this foreign woman from Moab ends up re- uh, being redeemed. Uh, she is rescued from the situation she's in by attaching herself to Israel, uh, which is a very interesting thing. And so the story about Ruth and Boaz is about how foreigners have a place too, which is sort of tongue-in-cheek these days. Ruth itself is set in the period of the judges. That's what, you know, Ruth chapter 1 tells us. And so to that end, Christian scripture will often place Ruth right before the book of Samuel, right after the book of Judges, whereas in the Jewish canon we saw last time, it gets kind of thrown into uh, later collections with the other five scrolls that are read liturgically. Um, Not only is Ruth a foreigner in Israel, but by the end of the book of Ruth, we learn that she is an ancestress of King David, one of the greats of the Hebrew Bible. And, And one of the things that's kind of interesting about this book is that it very obliquely references intermarriage between Israelites and non Israelites. And it connects the intermarriage between two different uh, uh, ethnic groups with the origins of one of the Bible's greatest kings. And that's not small potatoes, because one of the other collections, uh, one of the other books or texts in the Hebrew Bible, amongst the writings, Ezra and Nehemiah, will actually come down very hard on intermarriage. And and this is something that we see periodically. The book of Deuteronomy says that Israelites are not supposed to marry un-Israelites. Is that a word? non-Israelites, because if you marry a non-Israelite, they might seduce you to worshiping foreign gods. And yet here we have an example where that turns out the other way. Ruth ends up adopting Yahweh as her God. How do we imagine these stories fit together? Uh, Ezra Nehemiah says that when, uh, when Ezra the priest comes back to the land of Judah after the exile, he finds out that lots of Judean men have married non-Israelite women. And what's his answer? Do you know? Divorce them all. Kick them out of the house, them and their children. Send them packing. Yikes. <laughs> so when is Ruth written? And, 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 and this is the thing, right? We think that Ruth, we, some of us think that Ruth was actually written in this sort of setting to say, hey, 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 listen. When you really go back to early Israel, we see some stories about non-Israelites who have a place, who come to be really important members of our society. So before you go kicking everybody out of their houses and saying this is something that should not be and being very letter of the law, consider the story of Ruth. So what's interesting in this is that one gets the sense, if, if this is the right way of reading it all, okay, 
even if we don't, even if Ruth really was written in the time of Judges, the, the things that we cannot deny is Ruth is a story about a non-Israelite marrying an Israelite, creating a family that leads to great glory and success in Israel. How is that read by a group of people who thinks it's wrong to intermarry with non-Israelites? Some of whom contributed to the Hebrew Bible. It's a literature of resistance. It's pushing back. And that's sometimes one of the, the, the cool things about the books of the writings is that we get the sense that theology is more of a conversation that needs to happen rather than a lesson that needs to be taught. That there are controlling factors. Righteous people are blessed and bad people are cursed, but not always. And here are some circumstances you really want to think about. So probably just ignore everything I just said. You know, you don't want to marry outside your faith tradition because you never know what will happen. Except it could turn out really great, so just ignore what I just said. It's complicated. It's complicated. All right, and we'll talk about some more of those complications when we come back again next time, but I'm afraid I've kept you over, so uh, pardon me for that. Enjoy the rest of your days. Thank you so much for, for being with us today. Be careful in the snow and ice, and, uh, and, and just do yourself a favor. You just trust my word about the red lights. Don't go check it out for yourself. They're all working. All right, I'll see you next time.